Last Sunday, I spoke about something that's, <clears throat> that's hard to find in our culture, or just about any human community. So rare, in fact, that I'm at a loss to point to any good, real-life examples. I'm sure they exist, I, they just don't come to mind right now. What I'm speaking of is group humility. A social group, a human community that has as its core value, being humble about its own goodness and its status in relationship to other social groups. Now, obviously, group humility would be disastrous in some arenas, such as literally in arenas. Can you imagine a college basketball team practicing group humility on the court? No, you all go ahead. We made the last 10 points. Let the best team win, and clearly you're the one. Can you imagine political parties practicing group humility at election season? You know, we've been losing sight of our highest principles. Why don't you take the majority for a while until we get our act together? No, group pride is actually a good thing in many ways. Standing up to show honor and take delight in your city, your neighborhood, your team, your country, your identity group, that can be healthy and life-giving. It strengthens your sense of belonging and, and self-worth. But there's a shadow side. As my mother used to always remind me when I was growing up, if I got a little too big for my britches, she'd say, pride goeth before destruction. She was right. And I think that applies to groups as well. What sober and thoughtful American wouldn't admit that political pride and partisanship has gone off the rails? and is doing our country real and lasting harm. When pride of one's own group requires that you demonize the members of the other group, we all pay the price of our inability to work together as a human community and solve the problems that vex us all. And typically, the most vulnerable suffer the most. I think when it comes to matters of religion, it's even worse. You know, vast and diverse communities of people have come together over many ages across many different cultures and worldviews and formed religions. They have grouped together around a shared understanding of God, around common sacred texts and common human values. Well, practices that strengthen our sense of belonging and worth in a religious community is a good thing. Strong attachments to the group usually translate to healthy individual and group identity. It makes us better humans and better neighbors. But lack of group humility can be a very dangerous thing when we're talking about religious groups. So much horrific violence in this world 
we've suffered through the ages and continuing today is a result of a lack of religious group humility. How many wars have been fought and blood spilled and cities and towns destroyed over religiously motivated arrogance and group pride? I shudder to think how many children have been psychologically and spiritually destroyed because of a lack of group humility caused a religious power structure to cover it up and not speak the truth about its own failure. Religious groups historically have been among the most likely to cover up their sins and to demonize their opponents or rivals. An unspeakable evil has been the result. Slavery, the Holocaust, crusades, holy wars, all were done in the name of protecting the religious in-group. Now, I say all this because the images and metaphors in Isaiah that we heard this morning can easily, if we're not being careful, lead us to religious arrogance and foster attitudes that promote prejudice and even violence. And those very same images, when seen in the right light, can lead us to life and beauty and justice and shalom for all nations. Let's take a look at Isaiah's words again. Our reading was actually in two separate sections. First, from chapters 36 and 37, we have this horrific war story where one of the world's great powers, the Assyrian Empire, under King Sennacherib, led a scorched earth campaign against surrounding countries, including Judah, under King Hezekiah. Judah was way overpowered. Militarily, they didn't have much of a chance to resist. So a delegation from the empire went to Jerusalem, as we heard, to convince the people to surrender, promising a life of ease and independence if they would forsake their king and turn away from their God. King Hezekiah then cries out to God in a rare display of royal humility and lament. He tore his clothes. He went to the temple to seek God's blessing. When the prophet Isaiah heard, he sent a message to Hezekiah, reassuring him that God sees and hears what's going on, and God will ensure that King Sennacherib gets his due, and it will come to him in time in his own land. And then to reinforce Isaiah's comforting words, we jumped way back to chapter 2 of Isaiah and read these words of reassurance, well known to all. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, 
Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain and to the house of Jacob's God so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Don't you love those images? I do. They have captured the imagination of many a preacher and poet and artist over the years. They inspired the large guns into plowshares sculpture on the EMU campus that are, was created by our own Esther Augsburger and her son Michael. They are behind the Raw Tools project that's spreading across the country, making garden hand tools out of weapons, a project our own Larry Martin is involved with. And according to the index in the back of our Voices Together hymnal, at least 10 of our hymns in this book make reference to this passage. But we should take care, lest we allow group pride to plant some dangerous seeds in our corporate soil. What exactly are we imagining when we read, the mountain of, the, of Yahweh's house will be the highest of the mountains, it will be lifted up above the hills, people will stream to it, many nations will go and say, come, let's go up to Yahweh's mountain to the house of Jacob's God. Now, I've heard this text used in triumphalistic ways. I've heard preachers imagine a future where Christians rule the world. I have myself been tempted at times to read this as a sort of in-group validation. Isn't it great to be identified with that temple on top of the mountain? Isn't it great to picture every nation streaming to our place of worship? Rejecting their false religions and deciding that our religion was the one true one after all? What are we imagining about ourselves in this vision of Isaiah? And furthermore, what are we imagining about ourselves when we hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? read a few minutes ago. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Sounds pretty validating, doesn't it? That we would be identified as the light of the world and a city on a hill. Well, it can if we're not being careful. If we are lazy in our thought processes and make the mistake of thinking these scriptures are about us and our religion. So what does it really mean when we call ourselves the people of God? In the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this is a long-standing self-definition. We are God's people. We are God's 
chosen people. We are God's people sent into the world to carry out God's mission and message. We are God's people positioned on a hill for all to see and take notice. Now, there is truth in all of these faith claims that we make. And I continue to make these faith claims. I believe God is calling me, calling us, to show God's purposes to the world. But, but, here is where group humility is so critical. These faith claims are not about us, but about the God who works in us and with us. The notion of being God's chosen people has been twisted and misused throughout history. It has led to unfortunate assumptions by the nation-state of Israel that justify land seizures and oppression of Palestinians today. It has led to the dangerous pseudo-religion of white Christian nationalism that inspired many of the January 6th insurrectionists at the Capitol and still animates so many so-called Christians today. So what do we mean when we say God has called us? What does it mean to be a city on a hill before a watching world? What is our view from the hill? First and foremost, the hill is not a place of privilege and power. It's a place of visibility and accessibility. God's house is on a hill not to dominate or intimidate. It's on a hill so people can more easily see it and more readily access the shalom life. The God who made the hill calls us all there to live in humility and harmony and worship, not to exercise religious power or control over anyone. The hill is a place for all people and all nations to worship the Creator together. It's not a religious shrine of any sort. It's not a place of justification for any human religion or worldview. It's a place where all creation comes to bow before their creator and to experience the shalom life that the creator intended from the beginning. The mountain of God is a place where all will one day come together in a universal, massive act of group humility and bow in worship before the one who created them. And here's the bottom line. This is a vision for God's future, not our present. 
There's nothing about this vision, in fact, that should make us swell with pride or think our mission is to set everyone else straight and help them see it our way. This is God's mountain. And all religions, including ours, will bow before it one day. May it be so.